Thank you so much for the, the great worship. If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, that's why, why God gave us iPhones. Check out your app. You'll find one somewhere there. Uh, but Mark chapter 10, follow along with us. We're going through a series on the life of Christ, Son of God, uh, the life of Jesus in you. It doesn't do any good just to study theoretically what happened to Jesus. What we want to do is we want to bring it back home. And today we're talking about serve or be served. Serve or be served. Have you ever gone somewhere and gotten bad service? Have you ever gone to a restaurant? I've been known to drink at least a Diet Coke or six at, at any restaurant that I go to. Uh, I usually apologize to the server when they first come up. I'll, I say to them, they say, what would you like to drink? And I say, a Diet Coke, and I'm sorry right now. And they look at me kind of funny, and then my wife says, you'll find out in a moment. Because every Diet Coke that they give me has this big, huge hole, and it leaks out of the top, right into my mouth. Uh, one time when we were on vacation, uh, when I was just a boy, we went into a, a burger place down southeast, and uh, as my mother was eating her hamburger, she found a cigarette butt in the middle of her hamburger. She bit through the cigarette butt. That was not a good thing. And when my dad took it to the manager to tell him that that was not appreciated by my mother, the manager made the mistake of saying to my dad, are you sure it's not yours? That did not go over well. If you knew, my father was a pastor, but, but if you knew my dad, he absolutely hated cigarette smoking. He hated the whole concept of cigarettes. And uh, I don't think I've ever even think, I don't think my dad ever even tried a cigarette, although there was smoke coming from his ears that particular day, but that's totally different. You know, when we think of service, we think of we deserve to be served. We, we think when we go into a restaurant, we certainly deserve that. If you go to some other occasions, if you go to a wedding, especially if you're the bride and groom, you don't expect when you go in as the bride and the groom to have to set up the chairs on the day of the wedding. You don't expect necessarily with, for the bride in her wedding dress and the, and the groom in his tuxedo or a suit or whatever it is, you don't expect them to have to be you know, pouring the punch and, and taking the food and, and taking up the, the dishes from the table. That's their day. That's their time. We can't imagine that happening. What's amazing to me is when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, when Jesus Christ, who with a word spoke all of creation into being. I loved the songs that we were singing today because you spoke everything into being with just a word. Jesus Christ, who if anyone ever deserved to be served, Jesus deserved to be served. And what happened? No one served him. In fact, just the opposite, he came to serve us. And we're going to see that today. Matthew chapter 10, verse 45, as he's getting ready to, to finalize the time, the three years with the disciples, this is what he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is how this translates into us. Do you think God owes you something? Do you think America owes you something? Do you think that that you deserve to be served. And the Lord is trying to get our attention today and say to us, do you understand it's not about being served. It's about serving. Jesus died on the cross in the ultimate gift and sacrifice to us, and he served our sin by taking it away on the cross. And he, he came to serve 
unselfishly. And his death on the cross teaches us to love and to serve. You're going to see that. Uh, uh, it's a passage that's not real long, but it has so much meat packed into it. And, and we're going to start out, Jesus' sacrifice frees me to love. If you have your bulletin on the back, there's some notes you can follow along. His sacrifice frees me to love. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 uh, again, we've been following through the book of Mark, and we, we get to this portion. Um, it says, when they were on their way up to Jerusalem, they were coming from the south. No, they were probably coming from the north, but Jerusalem is about 2,000 feet above everything else around it, and so they always talk about going up to Jerusalem. So they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. And get this, look how detailed. They will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. Five specific things that Jesus says is going to happen, and it's going to happen from the time that he's speaking just within days, not weeks, but days. Look at verse 35. All of this is happening, and we understand that, that the book of Mark may not be completely chronological, but look where Mark puts this next, this next story. Then James and John. And Mark uses words immediately. Then this happened. I mean, it, he follows along as if it happened at the same time, and it very well might have. But look at what happens. He's just said, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be raised again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. When somebody asks you something like that, do you know what they really want? They want you to say yes before you, they tell you what it is. They know that what they're going to ask is something they either should not ask or that you're not going to want to do. And that's how they preface this. Look at what Jesus says, verse 36. And look at what he does. He answers their question with a question. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Uh, Jesus didn't agree. Verse 37, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am, to, I am baptized with? In the Old Testament, any time a prophet talked about a cup that you had to drink, this was not Diet Coke. This was not wine. This was death. This was destruction. The cup of destruction was a very well-known uh, analogy from the Old Testament. When he said, can you drink the cup I need to drink, they, they knew that this was a big deal. And then he talks about the baptism. It's not talking about going underwater. He says, are you going to be fully immersed? Are you going to be dunked into this life that I'm about to have? Look at their response, verse 39. We can, they answered. We can do it. Well, yeah. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right hand or at my right or left is not for me to grant these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus has a powerful teaching time with the disciples. And, he, and we should learn two things about this. Number one, am I willing to settle for selfish love? Jesus has just talked about this selfless service, and what do they do? They come up with this selfish idea. Hey, James and John, they get together and they say, hey, 
let's beat, let's beat these other guys to the punch. The other ten disciples are out here, and what if we ask if we can be number one and number two in the kingdom? What, you know, and it's all selfish. What can we get? Us, 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 us. And Jesus had left no doubt why he came. Jesus did not come to be a good teacher. He did not come to be a good example. He did not come just to teach us good morals. He did not come to, to, to make our life a little better. Jesus came to die. In Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus tells them, I'm going to be rejected by the religious authorities, I'm going to be killed, and after three days I will rise again. In Mark chapter 9, so in Mark 8, 31 and 32, in Mark 9, verses 30 and 31, Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed. I will be killed, and after three days I will rise again. And then again in chapter 10, what we just read, what did he say? I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spat upon, I'm going to be flogged, killed, and after three days rise again. Three times in three chapters, what does he say? I came to die. I didn't come to make you feel good about your life. I came to die for you. And just, just when Jesus warns of this, two of the three that go with him, in the Garden of Gethsemane to the, to the last place, two of the three that are allowed in when all the other disciples, there's not room in some of the homes, and he says, Peter, James, and John, go with Jesus. Two of the three come to Jesus with this incredible request. Do whatever we ask. Here's the irony. Mark only uses to be on the right and on the left Twice. This is one time when James and, John, uh, James and John come to him and say, can we be on the right and the left? He only uses it one other time. In, in Mark chapter 15, verse 27, it says, and they took Jesus out and they crucified him and they crucified two thieves, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said to them, can you understand what I'm about to do and if they had really followed through, they would be the ones crucified on either side of Jesus. They had no clue what they were asking. All they could think about is, this would be so good for me. This would, this would be, look good on a resume. This would look good when the church had come, comes about. I mean, I, I'm going to be the big guy. Years ago, we went on this mission trip to Jamaica. I, you know, when I say mission trip to Jamaica, people go, yeah, mission trip to Jamaica. I'd like one of those. Do you have one to Honolulu? I could do maybe a mission trip. When we went to Jamaica, we went up to the mountains. We did an hour and a half up into the mountains where there's 40% unemployment. We slept on concrete floors. The ladies had lizards about this long that would crawl over their sleeping bags at night. This was a mission trip. And we went to this mission trip in Jamaica, and we took 10 teenage uh, kids from our church. And the teenage kids, I mean, the, the first day that we were there, they started serving food and like ackee and saltfish, which is a really salty, salty, like a sardine that's really heavy on salt. And, and uh, they, the ackee was, was kind of like uh, spinach that was so horrible you couldn't eat it. Rotten spinach and salty, salty fish. That was breakfast one morning. And one of the teenage girls went to her dad, who happened to be on the trip. And, and I remember she put her hand on her hip and she said, this just won't cut it. And in her, in front of her, he turned to me and he said, this is my daughter. 
And this is the rest of the universe revolving around my daughter. The Lord sometimes takes us and says, this is you. And you think everything else in this world revolves around you. Is that how we live? Is that how we love? And you say, well, you know, sometimes I think of other people. Sometimes the people that I really love, I worry about those people that I love. I mean, my, my kids and my grandkids, my spouse, I, I worry about them. Richard Hayes says, constant worry is rooted in arrogant pride. This is what he says. Richard, Richard Hayes is his name. I know how my life should go, and if God does not get it, if it doesn't go that way, God got it wrong. Much of our worry is rooted in arrogant pride because we think we know how our life should go, how our children's and grandchildren's and how our nieces and nephews, how our spouse's life should go. And if it doesn't go that way, then we're mad at God. We're worried because God doesn't have it right. And we think if we have more power, if we have more money, if we have more control, if we have more connections, maybe it will allow us to get our way. It's easy to settle for selfish love. Because it's what we get out of it. We love only because it's reciprocated. We love because they're lovable. We love because they're beautiful or wonderful or they treat us right. Or that's why we love. Jesus comes and introduces selfless love. Not selfish. Selfless love. See, Jesus didn't need to die. Jesus had never done anything that would cause him to go to the cross And he came to die, not for himself, he died for you, he died for me. And his death was not a tragic accident. His death was not not some courageous martyrdom. That's not what it was. His death was a supreme act, something he designed, something he desired, something that he put together for you and for me. Evil needed to be paid for, and he paid for it on the cross. Jesus paid the price. You you understand, every religion, all the world religions that are out there, they don't have a cross. They don't have a God that's willing to die for you and for me. All of the religions that, all of the ways that we try to get to God are all about what we can do. And God says, no, I will come and I will go to the cross for you and for me. And when you have that kind of love, it's the kind of love that's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. It is not self-seeking. And my question to you today is, are you willing to settle for a selfish love? Only what you can get out of that love. Or number two, am I willing to invest in sacrificial love? Am I willing to invest in a love that's not about what I get back? Selfish love is nice, but selfish love does not change me. Do you get that? I mean, you think, oh, I'm in love. I'm, oh, I'm just so in love. Young people especially, they come to me, and I say, they say, we're going to get married. Why? Oh, we're just in love. We're in so much love. Well, describe, we're just in love. Have you thought about where you're going to live? We're in love. Do you have any money? We're, we're in love. Do you have... You know, careers, college, we're in love. And you just think, oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I, I go to the Food Network stuff from time to time, you know, just because look at me. I go to Food Network, okay? I like to eat. 
And somebody had posted on Bobby Flay's deal, I've been eating some smoothies. And they said, Bobby Flay's mango peach smoothie changed my life. I think I'm in love. No, you just had a really good smoothie. If you had just put a couple of scoops of ice cream, it would have been fantastic. But it was okay the way it was. All life-changing love is sacrificial love. It costs us. You have to pay dearly for it. I can prove this. How many of you have either had a baby or you were a baby at some point? Raise your hand. Some of you didn't get that. Okay. You either had or you were a baby. When a baby is born, they come out and they're completely ready to go. I mean, it's like opening a Sony box with a, you know, all of the stuff is there, right? No, it doesn't work like that. Somebody has to worry about feeding them. Somebody has to worry about changing their diapers and, and, and holding them. And someone has to worry about the clothes that they have and the place that they're going to live and the shelter that they have. Someone has to invest in them. Someone has to teach them and love them and talk to them, to read to them, to help them develop intellectually. If you sit your child down in front of a television, they'll learn a few things, but not anything that's all that helpful. Again, we, we get new studies that come out that say that the best children in all that, that ever come out, not just intellectually, not just educationally, but socially, are the kids whose parents read to them. We would show up in Nashville, our, our granddaughter, our oldest granddaughter is going to be, uh, she's 16, she's going to be 17 this fall. Ooh, Kathy, you're old. I'm same age. But anyway, um, when she was little, I would show up. And the first, she'd say, Papa! And then she would run to the other room. And I thought, well, that's some greeting. And she would come with these books under her arm. And she would crawl up in my lap, and she would have her books. And our kids used to say, Papa just got off the plane. Papa just got here. Give Papa a break. And I said, Papa has been waiting months to read these books. And one time she brought ten books, and I read them all to the way, way to the end. And she grabbed my face and turned my face to her. And she said, do it again. <laughs> and I did. Three times. And I loved every minute of it because I was pouring my heart into this child that I loved, that only got to see a time or two a year, and I wanted to pour everything I could into those moments with that child. We're told that if you want your child to grow up, you need to have ten positives for every negative that you say to them. That means if you say your room is dirty, you've got to think of ten nice things to say to that child. Ten positives for every negative. Babies don't develop automatically. All it takes for a baby is for you basically to abandon your independence for 18, 20, 25 years. That's all it takes. Either you make the sacrifice or they do. You suffer temporarily in a redemptive way or they suffer tragically in a wasteful, destructive way. You understand sacrificial love costs. So how do I invest in sacrificial love? The same way you do for that child. You invest when God's love pours into you, as Romans 5 says, when his love pours into us by the Holy Spirit, you pour it out into other people, not expecting anything back. You put others first. It's not, what about, it's not about what it means to you. In the Old Testament, there's one of the, the classic examples of this is the story of David and Jonathan. David is 17 years old, and he goes out and he defeats Goliath. And, and the Lord says that David is going to be the next king. Saul 
has, has abandoned the call that God gave him to be king. And David, is going, he's anointed by, by Samuel, but he goes 17 years before he's actually crowned as king. And as a 17-year-old, he befriends the, Saul's son, Jonathan, the king's son. Jonathan should be the next king. Jonathan is the one in line. Jonathan has every right to hate David. Instead, he loves David. And at one point, he saves David's life because Saul is, is trying to get David to come for this meal. And, and David understands if he goes, he's going to die. And Jonathan says, I don't think that's really what happened, but I'll go and I'll find out for sure and I'll come back. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14, look at what it says. Finally, Jonathan says they weep and they hug each other and they, they commit their friendship to the Lord. And then look at what Jonathan says. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord. Show me God's love as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And David says to him, this is not about what you get back. This is, this is what you're giving up for me. Jonathan sacrifices the throne for his friend. Selfless service flows from selfless love. God's sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, teaches me to love, not selfishly, but unselfishly, sacrificially. Well, then you look at the second part. Go back to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at Jesus' sacrifice frees me to serve. Not only to love, but also to serve. Go back to, to chapter 10, verse 41. When the 10, who are the 10? Well, the 12 disciples, two of them jump, and they're trying to get a jump on the other. So the 10 say, when the 10 heard about it, that's the other disciples, they became indignant with James and John. Aren't you glad to know that the early church was the same as ours? They had two people that stepped out of line, and the other ten became indignant. Verse 42, Jesus called, to them to, called them together and said, You know that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them. Now get this, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And by the way, the word he uses there for slave, it wasn't a butler. It wasn't the highest one in the home. It was the one who washed the feet, the lowest of all the slaves. Whoever wants to be first must be the lowest of the servants. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the next big thing that we have, Bartimaeus, is his eyesight is, is restored, and then Jesus comes to the triumphal entry. This is right at the end of his ministry. What do we find out here? Jesus' sacrifice frees me to, to serve. Number one, and I want you to ask three questions, and then we'll leave. Number one, does my service reflect Jesus' love? Does my service reflect his love? Is, is my service all about what I'm doing for Jesus, or is it what, what I'm doing for me? See, sacrifice is at the heart of true love. Sacrifice is at the heart of true love. And, and people who truly love you will sacrifice for you. I, I know going through high school, I had teachers who would pour their lives into me. 
and I've referenced them, uh, Marvin Kentz and, and Mrs. Womack, Alice Womack, and, and other teachers, the best teachers I ever had, they would come early in the morning. I used to have a, a, a teacher, Ray Gunn was his name. His parents were, were warped people, but his name was Ray. His brother's name was Peter, Peter Gunn. But Ray Gunn would come get me in the morning, and he would pick me up, and he would take me to the high school and he would t- and junior high, and he would teach me to play the cello to be a part of the orchestra. He didn't have to do that. He picked me up on the way, and it was out of his way to come to my home to pick me up and take me to school early. He, they poured themselves into my life. Maybe you've had a mentor, a friend, a teacher, a parent, a spouse who made a difference in your life. What did it cost them? Time, effort. What did it cost them? What's interesting is this, though. The New York, uh, the New York Times Magazine, the t- New York Times Magazine, wrote an article about, oh, eight, nine months ago, and it's called Happiness 101. And they were talking about, uh, in this article, if you focus on doing and getting things that bring you pleasure, it does not lead to happiness. If your life is focused on what makes you feel good, it never brings you happiness. If your life is focused on what can I do that will bring me pleasure, you won't be happy, this article says. Why? Because it produces what they call the hedonistic treadmill. And when you get on that, the more pleasure that you want, the more you need. The, the fix never goes away. The, the pleasure fix. And I'm not talking about drugs. or I mean, I mean it could be something as, as innocuous, something as wonderful, something as grand as riding a bicycle. It, it could be anything that you love to do. I love to ride bicycles. That's why I threw that in there. I, it, it could be anything that you love to do. And you think, well, it's just this pleasure. And if I just could get this pleasure, and it's not about that. Because you get on the treadmill. And if this is good, then you need a little bit more. You're never satisfied. This is what the article says. The best path to happiness, do selfless acts of service. Pour yourself out for needy people. And the result will be that you'll have closer relationships. You'll have more love and meaning and purpose in your life. This is a New York York Times magazine. These are not Christians. These are not believers. These are not religious folks. They're just looking at what works in their life. And they said, listen, if if you're doing it all for yourself, then you're on this treadmill. So start doing it for other people. You know what I think is so funny about that article? If you do that, it makes you happy. You're still into happiness 101. You're still doing it for all of the wrong reasons because you realize that you're not happy seeking pleasure, so you begin to give and you begin to sacrifice. If you lead an unselfish life to make you happy, it's still not unselfish. If you give offerings to the Lord to get the Lord to bless you, you've missed the whole point of giving. He wants us to give and to love and serve, not because we have to, but because we want to. We have a grandson, Lincoln is his name. He has Down syndrome. Lincoln is uh, seven years old, or just right, almost seven years old. Two years ago, we were at the beach. We had decided we were going to have a beach vacation. We had all the kids and the grandkids, and, and we were there. And, and Lincoln just loved the water. He would, he would stay in the water until he turned blue. He would stay in the water until he was so raw from the salt and the sand that he couldn't walk or stand. And his feet were raw, and his legs were raw, and his crotch was raw, and everything was raw. And he was just so happy. And every time you opened the door, he hit the beach again. And the very last day, it was the the ultimate indignity indignity because we had to get dressed up in nice clothes to get family pictures. It's the last day at the beach, and we're all dressed in fancy clothes to get pictures. 
and Lincoln was not a happy camper. And we walked down to get the right place, and we, you know, we walked a, a, a good bit, and we were all trying to stay unwrinkled, you know, and it's 90 degrees and all this humidity and stuff. And so we were trying to do that. And we got down to the end. We took the pictures. On the way back, we didn't really care if we were wrinkled or not. And he's, he's trudging along me, and it was like. And, and I said, what do you want, Link? He says, I want to go water. He wanted to go in the water. But they were the good clothes, and his mom was not going to let him do it. And I was tired. He was tired. We were hot, nasty. Scooped him down in my arms. I put him up to my shoulder. And I began singing silly song. I got a daisy on my toe. It is not real. It does not grow. It's just a tattoo of a flower. So I'll look neat taking a shower. It's on the second toe of my left foot. A simmon flower. But there's no root. I got a, got a daisy on my toe. It is not real. Let's see. I forgot the song anyway. I'm singing this silly song. And I get done, and he pats me on the back again. And then I began to sing other songs. And finally I ended up, you are so beautiful to me. You are so beautiful to me. Can't you see? You're everything that I hope for. You're everything that I need. You are so beautiful to me. And he quit tapping me and he just hugged me. He doesn't understand all the words, but he understood the heart. And he understood that Papa carried him at a time that he couldn't walk anymore. And the Lord says, would you like to come to me to understand what that's all about? Would you like to serve like that? I didn't have to carry Link that day. I did it because I wanted to. I didn't do it for the way it made me feel because I didn't know he would respond like that because sometimes Lincoln doesn't respond like that. I did it because I love him. Galatians 5.13 says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. You see a brother who can't walk anymore? Scoop him up and begin to sing in their ear. To love them, to serve them. Here's a second one. <clears throat> does my service garner people's trust? It's not just about does it reflect Jesus' love, but does it garner people's trust? The, the other ten were indignant. James and John had done a terrible thing, and they were, they were angry. They did not trust the two at that point. Do we think of other people's interests first or others, or, or, or our, our own? When when. The nation of Israel split in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. When the northern kingdom is taken out of the picture in 722 and the southern kingdom is left, they didn't learn from the northern kingdom. And eventually Babylon comes in 586 or so and takes the southern kingdom of Israel and takes them into captivity. And God could have said to them, resist. God could have said to them, fight them tooth and nail. God could have said, when you go to Babylon, when you're carried off in captivity... You destroy anything you can. You, you be good guerrillas underground, but that's not what he said. God gives them a radical strategy when they're in the midst of being taken away as a nation. What does he say? In Jer Jeremiah 29, 7, look what it says. Jeremiah 29, 7, oops. That's the wrong verse. Let me read it to you, okay? Jeremiah 29, 7 says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. 
Seek this, the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now get that. When you're taken into captivity, when you're living among people that don't believe in God, when you're living in a society that doesn't care what you believe anymore, you could do a couple things. You could fight them for all that you're worth, or you could begin to show God's love to them, to pray for God, to, to pray that God would prosper them. Influence gained through power and control does not change the society. It doesn't change hearts. Folks, if we want to get America back to where America needs to be, it's not going to be at the ballot box, and it's not going to be out on a picket line, and it's not going to be doing the things that we think that we need to be doing. It's by going and showing them the love of Jesus Christ and sacrificial service and doing it in such a way that it begins to change their hearts so that they begin to trust you. If we're so loving, if we serve in such a way that that those who don't know Christ begin to trust us, Know that we want the very best for them. Know that we will always put their interests in front of our own interests. Then they'll begin to trust us. And even more than that, they will be unable to imagine life without us. Or at least without that godly influence. We should be salt and light, Jesus said. We should be a preservative. We should be that which heals the wounds. We should be that when it's dark and they don't know which way to go, that Christians are the one who come and say, we want to serve you, and the one way that we can serve you is that this may be the way to go. It happened in the early church. It, trans- it transformed the whole society. Look at what happened, uh, Romans 16. Oh, you know what? That was the right verse. I just was quoting the wrong thing. Okay, Romans 16, 3 and 4. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Literally what it says is all the churches trusted them. Priscilla and Aquila, two people... They didn't hold a public office. They didn't have titles. It wasn't that they were exceedingly wealthy. They took Paul. They took Apollos. They took key people, and they loved on them, and they served them, and they served the churches in such a way that when Paul is done at the, at the end of Romans, when he's giving all of these accolades, he points out to them that not just their church, but all the churches of the Gentiles trusted them and are grateful to them. Does our service garner people's trust? Do people see us as Christians and say, you can always trust Christians? Here's the third one. Does my service elevate people's respect? How did Jesus respond to his enemies? How did Jesus respond to his enemies? Usually, anyway. In fact, all the time. At one point, he says to the Pharisees, woe to you, and he calls down some things on them because of the things that they're doing. But does he give them what they really deserved? Does Jesus ever give his his enemies what they deserved? No. Did he call down legions of angels to destroy them? Does he call hail and, and fire down from heaven? Could he have done that? Absolutely. He had every right to be honored. He had every right to be served. How does Jesus treat his enemies? He died for them. Jesus Christ died for Hitler and Saddam Hussein. 
Jesus Christ died for everyone who's wanted to kill Christians. Jesus Christ died for all of his enemies. Earlier in that video piece that we had earlier on Memorial Day, and, and we were looking that greater love has no man that a man lay down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. Jesus says, I didn't lay down my life for my friends. I, I laid down my life for my enemies. In verse 45, where it says for, the word in, in Greek, anti, an, anti, is in the place of, instead, in substitute. He, he became our substitute. And the word ransom, lutron, lutron means to, to buy the freedom, buy back from the marketplace, buy the freedom of a slave or a servant, someone who, who has really got this debt that they can't handle anymore. And, and lutron means that you have to pay a price equal to the debt. So all of the sin of everybody who's ever been here, Jesus paid for all of that. Listen, I can imagine wanting to, to ransom my wife. If, if someone kidnapped my wife, first of all, they had, didn't do a very good job of checking my finances. But if they ransomed my wife, I would give everything I had. I mean, I would, I would go into whatever debt. I would do whatever it took to ransom my wife, my children, my grandchildren. I would do that. But was for someone who wants to kill me, would I give everything for someone who wanted to kill me? Well, Jesus did. And who were Jesus' enemies? I was. You were. Romans 5.10 says, When we were Christ's enemies, he died for us. He died to pay what I could not pay. Is there a difference between trust and respect? You, you said, well, you know, we're supposed to be garnering trust, so that's... Uh, is there a difference between trust and respect? I went to Webster's Dictionary. Webster's Dictionary says, to trust is to place confidence in someone. To respect is to consider someone worthy of highest esteem. I, I mean, you can place your confidence. Maybe there's, there's been some presidents that I don't necessarily agree with pol politically, but I don't think there are liars and cheats and scoundrels. Not a whole lot of presidents like that, but there have been some presidents like that. Some politicians that I may not agree with and I may not respect everything that they believe, but I do trust that when they say something, they're not lying. But it's different from respect. Someone that you respect and you hold in highest esteem. Tomorrow's Memorial Day. A day when we honor those who died defending our nation. They fought off our enemies to keep us safe. When my father was 25 years old, he was born in Germany, but he joined the U.S. Army Air Corps. He wanted to be a pilot, but uh, he didn't make it as a pilot. He ended up as a navigator, and he flew missions. He flew a whole, whatever it was, 20-something missions. They never lost a single person in their squadron, or excuse me, in their plane. They lost virtually every other plane in their squadron, but their plane... If you've ever seen the, the movie Enola Gay, the, not Enola Gay, uh, Memphis Belle, if you've ever seen that movie, it was based on a, another plane about like my dad's where they came back and everyone lived through all of the missions. My dad saw a lot of people die around him. The hardest part, though, he would tell us when we were kids was the day that when he went to the briefing, he found out that the place that he was supposed to bomb was his hometown. 
navigator on a bomber had to go and bomb his own hometown, knowing that he had cousins and relatives still there in Germany that he was bombing. I said, Dad, how did you do that? He said, I was called to defend my nation. I was called to do a job. And I didn't want to do it, but I served. And I was willing to, di to die for my nation because of all the good things that the, my nation had done for me. You see, you can trust someone, but do you have a level of respect for them? In Acts chapter 9, verse 36, in Joppa, in the city of Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated as Dorcas in Aramaic. She was always doing good and helping the poor. If you went on further than that, you, you know that Tabitha died, and when she died, all the people brought all of the things. She had sewed clothes for the people who didn't have clothes, and, and she did all these other things, and, and they brought them in, and they were weeping. And they were weeping because they said, this is a woman that we love and respect. My question is this. Would someone come to us at the end of our life and see us and say, I have that same kind of love and respect for them because of what they did for Jesus Christ? Let me close with this. He won't like this, and so I'll, just, I'll, I'll apologize up front. I'm standing at a pulpit that was built by one of the members of our congregation here. Roger Ingeman built this, this pulpit. I, I had had a pulpit like this in another church. It's beautiful. It, it has an octagonal shape at the bottom. And I just like it because it's just the right size. It's just my height. And, and it was built literally customized for me. And I'd been over to Roger Ingeman's home and I'd seen some of the furniture that he made. And he does beautiful handiwork. And I trusted him to do this. And he worried and fretted over it, and he, he wanted to have it exactly right. And, and he, he said, well, some of the seams aren't too tight when he got done. And I'm thinking, you couldn't get anything in between any of these seams. It's absolutely it's some of the, the most gorgeous handwork I've ever seen. I trusted Roger before I saw him do the pulpit, but I respect him on a whole different basis afterwards because he didn't really want anybody to make a big deal out of it. And he's gone on to make a pulpit for Ton up in the Mian church and he's the communion table and, and other things, other pieces of furniture that he has built. And one time I was talking to Roger and I said, Roger, man, you just, you have so much skill. And he said, I just want to serve the Lord. I just love the Lord. I respect you, Roger, for all the hard work you put in, for the way you teach Sunday school week after week, for the way you have loved this church and loved me and loved the brothers and sisters in this church. And one day when we stand in heaven, we're going to think somebody that stood behind this pulpit maybe is going to get the highest accolades. And I'm here to tell you, there are going to be a lot of people like Roger Ingeman that you may not have seen. They may have stood be behind the scenes, but they have served and they've loved and people trust them and respect them because of what Jesus Christ did in their life. And my question is, will you be one of them? Let's pray. What an amazing God you are, Father. What an amazing God you are. You decided to do something different by showing us what real love was all about. Sacrificial love. And that love led to a service. Thank you, Father, for who you are. As we come into your presence today, Father, there may be someone here who has never accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. They don't know what it means 
to be a part of the family of God. Not just to be religious, but to, to know you, to love you. Father, change them from the inside out. Begin to work in my heart, in their heart. Make us more like you. Help us to love you. You're so awesome. You're an amazing God. On this Memorial Day weekend, you called these people here to hear this message that you laid on my heart, starting with me. I love you. I need you. I serve you. I want to invest in that sacrificial love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Closing, as we sing this closing song, if you have a spiritual need, you can come and sit on one of the chairs in the front here. Someone will come and pray with you. Sing along as we sing this song.